This is The Shift Podcast. Thanks for checking out The Shift Weekend Podcast with John Jang. And on this episode, we chat with Larry Gifford, the National Director of Talk Radio for Chorus and host of When Life Gives You Parkinson's, the podcast. We talk about how this is Parkinson's Awareness Week and Month in Canada and what we can do to promote that awareness. Are you okay with Peaky Blinders? We also discuss the recent restrictions that were announced and extended in Ontario. And what is a hockey game worth to you? What is it worth to the NHL? Jeff Patterson, host of the VanCast podcast with The Athletic, joins us with the latest on how the pandemic is affecting the NHL. Hey, do you like podcasts? Why not subscribe to ours? You can find it on Apple, Google, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. All right, a very special guest joining us tonight here on The Shift. Uh, he is the National Director of Talk Radio for Chorus Entertainment, in a sense, my boss in a big way, also host of the podcast When Life Gives You Parkinson's. You can find that with CuriousCast, uh, Curious Cast, pardon me, and online at globalnews.ca. Mr. Larry Gifford, a pleasure and appreciate you joining us here tonight. I always like it when I get uh, it's a very special guest, like I'm that very special episode of like the family ties. <laughs> well, that's exactly what this is now. And so we've got you here. I mean, uh, certainly the shift has been going for a while, but this is uh, my first time having a chance to uh, have a sit down conversation with you. So I'm, I'm very excited about this. Yeah, you cannot have a raise. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I understand. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us here tonight. It was a pleasure. All right, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> uh, no, obviously, you know, we're we're here having a chat about something very important to you and uh, hopefully to everybody else as well. So, Larry, as the host of the When Life Gives You Parkinson's podcast, uh, and um, you know, considering the day and the month that it is right now, let us know why it's so important to have this conversation right now. Well, Parkinson's is the world's fastest growing neurological condition. Neurological conditions make up more of the um, issues regarding um, uh, regarding disability than anything else in the world. Uh, you see what's happening with COVID and the, the lack of smell and people are having the, the long haulers and the, 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 the different... Uh, extended uh, neurological issues that we're beginning to become aware of. Um, that's that's just a you know we're, we're worried about that. But like you know you talk about MS, you talk about ALS, you talk about uh, you know Parkinson's. These are all within that same family. You know one of the first things that can happen when you get Parkinson's is you lose your sense of smell. So when I heard that that was a sign of COVID, I'm like, uh-oh, I bet there's neurotrophic factors involved with this, which just means that it has something to do with your brain and your nervous system. Um, Parkinson's, uh, between the years of 1990 and 2015, doubled in the number of people in the world who have had it. And it's going to double again in between now, it will, between 2015 and 2040. Uh, and that's growing faster than the rate of uh, the the population growth, uh, which technically, uh, all things considered, it, before the current pandemic we were in, Parkinson's was being classified as a pandemic. Imagine that. And unlike COVID-19, where there are vaccines, where you can get booster shots, there's no such thing with Parkinson's right now. And so that's why it's so important to continue to have this conversation and raise awareness. And allow people to understand that uh, it is still happening. And as you're saying, the, the doubling of these rates, that's very alarming. 
Well, and most people don't know what it is, and I'm, I hate to put you on the spot, but like if you I was to ask you what's Parkinson's, what would you say? For most of us, and I'll be totally honest, I think most of us think back to Michael J. Fox. I think that's the only real example of us hearing about Parkinson's um, within the, the, the common conversation, if you will. Yeah, and usually you think of him shaking a lot. Or, That's right. You know, and, and really, what you think of as Parkinson's is actually a reaction that he has to the medication for Parkinson's. The gold standard medication of Parkinson's that I take, that he takes, is called Cinemat. It's, a, it's levodopa, which is replacement dopamine. Because the problem with people with Parkinson's is by the time they start showing symptoms, whether it's a tremor or a, a gait issue or could be constipation, could be depression, could be any number of symptoms. Uh, once those begin to manifest, you've lost 80% of your dopamine-producing brain cells. Wow. And so the dopamine is, I'd call it, it's the grease for any action that you want to do with your body. So let's say you want to reach over and pick up a cup of coffee. Well, the dopamine is released, and it's kind of like the oil that lets the transmitters go through your body so you, your, your brain can talk to your body. And so if you don't have that, I can go reach for that cup and I'll miss it and I'll dump it over. Mm. Or I walk through that doorway and I bump the doorway because I can't navigate my way through because I don't have enough of the dopamine in my system. And that's what was happening to me before I was diagnosed is I, I couldn't type with my right hand and I couldn't, I couldn't actually control my right hand to go into my front pocket uh, to grab my keys. I couldn't throw the Frisbee because I couldn't time the release. So like little things like that, that you, you're like, well, that parkinson's that's just maybe i hurt my shoulder or something you know like you don't you're, you're not thinking it's parkinson's so um it, it's it's those non-motor and motor movements so non-motor uh it's lack of sense of smell it's uh i can't control movement when i'm dreaming so like usually when you when you fall asleep and you dream your body kind of shuts down and it's self-protecting that's an automatic function that no longer works for me hmm. so the other night i'm in <laughs> I'm asleep and then I wake up as soon as I hit the floor because I jumped out of bed apparently and landed on my knees, but I didn't wake up until I landed on the floor. Wow. Now that could also be a, a punch in the middle of the night to, into my desk, into my nightstand or my lamp. Luckily it hasn't happened to my wife, but it could. Right. But I wouldn't know it. So there's, there's a lot of things that go on to it. Depression, anxiety, apathy. These are all things that happen not in, in reaction to disease, but because of the disease. So they're, they're, and, and so the understanding of Parkinson's, even amongst doctors, isn't even truly uh, as, as known as it should be. And I understand that you recently were invited to help uh, work on a workshop with the World Health Organization to try and, again, raise awareness to what's going on with Parkinson's and indeed identifying it as a global pandemic. Well, yeah, and I think th th this workshop was super special to be there. Um, it was, it was, it was. You know, they were in Geneva. I wasn't because of the pandemic, right? Uh, but um, the the next sessions, I will be going to Geneva for them. Uh, there was thirty of us in the world invited to participate, and mm -hmm. I was the only person with Parkinson's there in the world. Oh wow! Well, there's ten million people in the world with Parkinson's, so I guess I was representing ten million people. I hope I did them all proud. Hmm. Uh, but the problem is, if you've ever heard Michael J. Fox talk, you know if you've met one person with Parkinson's, you've met one person with Parkinson's, because we're each dealt a different hand. Like I, the, the most frustrating part about this disease is I don't, you don't know what's next. It's it's degen degenerative, so you don't know what tomorrow brings, and it, you don't know with 
what you're going to wake up to, and you don't know how long your degeneration is. You know, I got this at, you know, diagnosed at 45. Do I have five more viable years of work, or do I have 15 or 20? I don't know, um, and I won't know until it happens. But this workshop uh, was really designed uh, to, um, to bring light to the issue of Parkinson's disease, and it, it's something that's never been discussed at this level of the WHO. And they called it a virtual consultation workshop with uh, international experts to address the global policy, implementation considerations, and the research agenda for Parkinson's disease. And so we split up into small groups. So there was like, we sort of laid the foundation. We split up in small groups. We've made some recommendations. We're, we're writing a technical a brief for the United Nations. Uh, and all the member nations will, will eventually be getting instructions on how we uh, recommend they move forward. I mean, that's obviously a, a massive uh, honor to you to be able to go to something so exclusive and yet so important and something so meaningful to you. And, well, yeah. and, and for those, I mean, obviously we work in the, in, the, uh, in the realm of radio, so they can't see what I see. But right now you're wearing a hat and uh, I, I couldn't help but notice it reads uh, Sixth World Parkinson Congress, Barcelona 2022. Is that, that's got to be something significant. So let me ask you what that's about. Yeah, so the, uh, the World Parkinson Congress is held every three years, uh, and it's held in a different international city. Um, it was held in uh, Quebec not too long ago. Uh, I think the fourth was in, or yeah, the fourth was in Quebec or the third. Um, and uh, we had one in in uh, Portland not too long ago. But uh, the last one I went to uh, was in Japan. It was in Kyoto, uh, and this one I am a, an ambassador for. Um, so I'm a World Parkinson. Uh, um, uh, ambassador, uh, and uh, so I go around and I speak and I tell people about it, and it's it was life changing for me. Uh, for me, it's the first time that I was in a room with other people my age who have Parkinson's disease. Um, it was the first time that I've been in a room of you know with a thousand people with Parkinson's, and we got to see, you get to see everybody. But not only that, it's the only uh, conference uh, medical conference in the world. Where doctors, researchers, uh, uh, the the uh, home health care uh, caregivers, and people with Parkinson's or people that have the disease are in the same place at the same time, interacting with each other on stage and off. And so there's usually between um, three and five thousand people at this event, wow. and it, it is a commingling. And a lot of the researchers have never met anybody with Parkinson's, but they've been researching Parkinson's all their life. They're looking in, in, cell, in you know, petri dishes and, and not at people. Hmm. Or they're looking for patents instead of meeting the people. And so what we try to do, what I try to do as an advocate, uh, is, is bring it back to the people with Parkinson's. And, you know, are you doing the right research for the right thing? Is it really going to help us or are you just trying to get a patent? You know, and, or, or, are you, or did you know this person over here? Because they're working on the same thing. And so I try to bring people together like that. Uh, and that led me to found a group last summer called PD Avengers, uh, which is a, a global organization. Uh, currently, we have uh, just over 3,000 members uh, in 62 different countries um, and 50 uh, partner organizations around the world. Uh, and everybody who can hear my voice can be a PD Avenger. You just go to pdavengers.com and you sign up. It's your name, your country, and your uh, your email address. Um, and, and you can learn all about it, but basically it, we're trying to raise voices. Mm. I don't raise money. It's not, it's not about fundraising. There's a lot of organizations that do that. We're adding urgency to the cause of ending Parkinson's. 
is that the best way that some of our listeners here tonight can help out is to go with that website and get involved? Because if it's not about money, it's simply about getting the conversation into a more regular space where we're having these uh, these chats more regularly instead of just waiting until Parkinson's Awareness Week and Parkinson's Awareness Month right now. Yeah, and in a lot of the world, there's a big stigma around it too. So, like, uh, I've got a friend named Hannington who is in uh, Uganda, and his mother had Parkinson's, but they didn't know it. The village just deemed her a witch. Oh yeah, wow. And so he, his father, took him and his brother and his sister away. Uh, they had to move out of the house, and they were never to return. And his mom was left to, to fend for herself. And of course, with a neurodegenerative disease, uh, you lose your, your ability to walk and, and move. And so she's bedridden, and she's they're, they're you know the bravest person in the village is poking her you know some 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 food into her room with a stick, but she can't reach it. He went back there at one point, and she was scraping off the dust off the wall like with like a bottle cap and he asked her what she was doing and she was she was using the bottle cap to scrape the wall so she could eat the dust oh jeez and so there's a lot of education that needs to go on around the world um and uh, there's 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 programs there's parkinson africa there's the world parkinson program that are helping you know those those countries where you can't get access to the medication one in three countries in the world cannot access the gold standard medication that's over 50 years old so I guess here in Canada, we're in a bit more of a fortunate, more lucky position, if you will. Here, here's how lucky we are, hmm. John. Uh, I'm going to have to have brain surgery, okay? Right. It's called brain stimulation at some point. I'm in line to get evaluated for that. I got in line a, a year ago. It was a 48-month wait. Wow. Just wow. to get evaluated. Yeah. That's so not that's not even not going under great. the knife. That's literally just being told, okay, you are ready to go under the knife. Another right. 48 plus months later, who knows? Now, my my neurologist recommended that I get in line. So if my neurologist says I need it, I probably need it. Fair. So so now there's a second evaluation just for kicks, I guess. Uh, and, and, and and then you go you have to wait another six to nine months to have the surgery. Um, so, but I'm losing good years because with that surgery, I, I get five or 10 years back. Mm. So I, I want five or 10 of the good years back. So I'd like to go under the knife tomorrow if I could, but right. I can't. And is that, so, is that one of the, is that one of the main struggles right now for Canadians with Parkinson's is again, I mean, Hey, it's great. We have a public health different. Right. Every province is different. Right. So like if I lived in Winnipeg, I could probably get surgery in nine months. If I lived in you know, you know they they've got a lot more cutting edge stuff at, uh, coming out of Toronto Western right now. There's a lot of great research there, uh, and they're 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 testing different different things there. So, you know, it just depends on where you are and how lucky you are. Like in in the UK, they're they're they're, they're experimenting with all sorts of different things. They're doing stem cells and uh, in the America in the US right now some testing. And so we're on the brink of a biomarker, which is kind of like a blood test to to find for Parkinson's. But uh, there's they can. There's a couple of them, ones with uh, eyesight, ones with earwax, ones with sebum, ones with blood, and, and they're getting really close. Because if we can identify people with Parkinson's before the onset of symptoms, then it's about, okay, then how do we have a disease-altering drug that can stop it from onsetting? And then you don't need to suffer all your life. You can have Parkinson's and live with it um, with some medication as opposed and no symptoms as opposed to um, what what basically I'm going through, which is just sort of a slow uh, degenerative decline for the next however many years. 
Fair. And, and Larry, before we let you go, how long have you now been dealing with Parkinson's in your life? Well, we, I, nobody knows. Um, right. But I can. I was diagnosed in 2017, but I can count back now, looking back in hindsight, and see the different symptoms as they onset. And before diagnosis, it was at least seven to eight years of, of dealing with some of the symptoms. Is that in itself as an issue? Because earlier in the conversation, you were talking about how, oh, this can't be Parkinson's. This is just me maybe being clumsy. I don't really know. Is that something that people need to be aware of? Is that if you oh, feel sure. like there's a small chance that you could be suffering from some of these early onset symptoms, you have to go and get tested? Yeah. I mean, I thought I was getting weaker on my right side. I was fumbling around. I bumping into things. And I was like, well, whatever. I couldn't type right. Well, I've never heard that as a, a symptom for Parkinson's. My handwriting got really small. That's a symptom of Parkinson's. It's called micrographia. Um, I couldn't read my notes anymore after meetings. I'm like, that's weird. I must be getting older. Hmm. Um, you know, maybe, or, or my body feels different. Maybe that's just how you feel when you turn 40. I've never been 40 before. I had an excuse for everything, John. Uh, uh, John, I, 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 could, I could make an excuse uh, better than anybody in the world. But looking back on it now, I should have just gone to the doctor. You know, you know what got me to go to the doctor? What was that? I, I was handing my son, who was like eight at the time, uh, a glass of water. And I, my hand was 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 tremoring. Mm. And the water was coming out. And he goes, Dad, why is your hand tremoring? I'm like, I, I don't know. He goes, well, you should really see a doctor. <laughs> the, like, wisdom, ah, the wisdom of pretty... children, right? <laughs> like, well, all right. Well, I better set a good example here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good thing he was there to make that observation because now – at this point, you know, you, as you say, you've been acting as an ambassador. Uh, you were recently a part of that panel with the World Health Organization on that workshop. So there were some silver linings to that moment. And uh, hopefully, you know, with the work that you're continuing to do, we can raise more awareness. We can have these conversations more regularly. And, of course, the best place for you to check out these conversations. Again, it's When Life Gives You Parkinson's. You can find it at globalnews.ca. And that link you provided, pdavengers.com. Larry, appreciate all that you've done and all that you will continue to do, and so much for giving us some time here on the show tonight. Thanks so much. This is The Shift Podcast. That brings us to Are You Okay? Let's hit it. Ah, yeah. Love this too. Are You Okay? With the show Peaky Blinders. Um... I've never seen it personally. Is it that Australian show or? <laughs> well, close, but not quite. Uh, Peaky Blinders is a, is a hit show. Uh, it's set in London during, uh, I want to say just after World War I, but before World War II. So let's say the 1920s, 1920s, 1930s. And it uh, sort of revolves around a group of uh, brothers and gang members, but not really gang members in the sense that you and I are possibly thinking about. It's a group of individuals trying to make their way, and they have to do it uh, using illegal methods. And it's a, it's a hit show, like I said. It features, I believe I'm getting his name right, Killian Murphy, who was the star of movies like 28 Days Later. He also had roles in Batman Begins as Scarecrow. Like he, He's been in a bunch of other things, just a really talented actor. Show has tremendously taken off. And um, you know, even for Halloween last year, I saw, although you're not supposed to go to parties or anything, people still wanted to dress up. And one of the most popular, easy Halloween costumes for men was dressing up as one of the members from the Peaky Blinders. And so I think 
People probably know what this show is all about. Maddie, if you're, you know, if you got some time now throughout the week, if you need a new show, I'd recommend you check out Peaky Blinders. It's actually pretty, pretty chill. Cool, cool. We'll will do. All right. Are you okay with Peaky Blinders? 877-399-9898. You let us know. Well, some sad news regarding the show and its cast here today. Uh, the passing of one of their stars. The Dark Lord himself forbade me to speak of this. Actress Helen McCrory has died. She was 52 years old. Helen's husband, Billions actor Damian Lewis, revealed the sad news on Instagram Friday, writing in a touching post, quote, I'm heartbroken to announce that after a heroic battle with cancer, the beautiful and mighty woman that is Helen McCrory has died peacefully at home. Damien went on to praise his late wife for living fearlessly and acknowledged how lucky he feels to have had her in his life. Quote, she blazed so brightly. Damien and Helen married in 2007 and shared two kids together, 14-year-old daughter Manon and 13-year-old son Gulliver. In a 2011 interview with the Evening Standard, Damien shared a heartwarming tradition between the couple. After his proposal to Helen in Paris was interrupted by tourists, they started taking annual trips back to the City of Lights every February without their kids for their anniversary. <laughs> Helen was known for her role in the Harry Potter franchise as Draco Malfoy's mom, Narcissa. You should be honored, Sissy. As for Draco, he's just a boy. She also starred in the series Peaky Blinders. Mr. Shelby asked me to tell you that he's busy with the catering preparation. And while you're waiting, we have opium, cocaine, and brandy. And Penny Dreadful. I needn't remind you of the consequences of disloyalty. Need I? I just can't imagine what the museum governors would make of them. Just uh, very, very sad news there. Helen McCrory passing away at the age of 52. Uh, a short uh, battle there with cancer. Simply too young. Uh, tremendously talented. I really enjoyed a lot of her works. Uh, her filmography speaks for itself. But, uh, you know, I, I think it was very touching the fact that her and her husband, Damian Lewis, you know, when we look at Hollywood couples, we know that some of them, sometimes it feels like, ah, this is just a PR move, right? They're just trying to do the whole Benefer thing from back in the early 2000s. But no, with these two, you could tell there was genuine love, respect, admiration between each other. And so, you know, well, we're going to miss her a lot. Certainly, uh, as you heard, uh, she leaves behind two children and, of course, her husband. Uh, just sad news there. Let's bring it back. Are you okay? Well, we were talking about it on the show earlier. It's the big news from Ontario earlier today. Government uh, instituting some new rules. Are you okay with new and increased police enforcement? Specifically on Ontario, but we can hypo go hypothetical and just say anywhere in Canada for that matter. Yeah, I mean, it would be good to be trusted, you know, to be following the rules, I guess. That's where I'm sort of at with it. Um, but maybe a step like this, even though it sounds extreme, maybe it's mm -hmm. necessary. Yeah, I think that's a really valid counterpoint because there, look, there was a, a negative backlash on social media, on Twitter, certainly. A lot of people that when they heard this announcement were really confused as to why this had to be a thing. There's a lot of people saying, well, we need more vaccines. We need more assistance. We need uh, more paid sick days. And I think those are all extremely, extremely valid points. 
But we also know there are individuals out there and large groups of people that continue to gather, continue to violate public health orders. And if we're going by the honor system, it's not just in Ontario. It's across the country. It's not working. We can't trust the large bulk of people to continue to do the right thing. There is a COVID fatigue and people that have been asked to stay inside, socially distance and keep wearing masks and do all these things. They used to do it regularly. Maybe they're not doing it as tightly as they should be nowadays. So if this police enforcement can work, there are some positives. But is it too much? Take a listen to the announcement. This was a part of Premier Doug Ford's announcement with his staff earlier today. So by issuing these new additional enforcement measures, it allows police officers to ask the person why they are not at their place of residence and what their place of residence is. And specifically to your question, um, if you are not willing to comply, then you are breaking the law and there is an option for the police officer to issue a ticket. So in terms of the, uh, the ticket cost, uh, that of course is set by the Chief Justice. Uh, currently, if you break an order under the EMCPA, then it is $750 as I understand it. So it's a really sticky situation. On one hand, like I, I understand on paper why the government wants to make this a thing. They want stricter enforcement so that the public is dissuaded from wanting to break the rules. But simply increasing the fines and having police now do these things, I don't believe will necessarily pan out. For an example, here in British Columbia, we've seen thousands of COVID-19 related fines being issued. Thousands. You know how many people have paid it back? Less than 10%. Less than 10% of individuals that have faced fines in BC have decided to pay it back. Some might have chosen to go and you know contest it in the courts. Others might have just decided, I'm not paying it. We don't know what the consequences of that is going to look like. But we got this text here at 877-399-9898 saying, I live in Ontario and I work nights. You would be absolutely amazed at how many people are going out and about at night. During this past year, I wondered where people are going. It's a valid point. Now, everyone's going to have different experiences with what they see and what they're experiencing just within the communities that they live in. A Angel and Hamilton saying, F, no. Who wants to get pulled over every time they walk their dog? And I think, Angel, that's a, that's a key point. We know things like walking your dog. I mean, certainly that's essential, right? But even just going on a walk around the block to get some fresh air. That has been one of the things that even the Ontario government themselves have been saying since the beginning is okay to do, is safe to do, is encouraged. Now, if you happen to do it, and if a police officer sees you doing it, you might have to get hassled. You might have to pull out your ID, your driver's license to verify who you are and what you're doing, where you came from, where you're going, how soon you're going to go home. All of these questions now that feel unnecessary. But for those that maybe, question the validity of this ruling. And look, I'm, 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 I'm only playing devil's advocate. I, I do not like this ruling. But if I'm playing devil's advocate, how else then would you try and curb the number of people breaking the rules? How else would you do it? If you don't like this new introduction of uh, enforcement, how would you go about enforcing change? Because again, the honor system isn't working. Anne in Pickering, Ontario, 
texting in saying, if there's any doubt left in your mind that Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford were completely certifiable imbeciles, look at the incompetence demonstrated by both of them today and for the last year. Perry Dreadful in Hamilton saying, as far as Ontario goes, I'm definitely okay with increasing enforcement, considering there has been zero enforcement so far. I drive a city bus and I see the same bad actors day after day, just doing whatever they please. While my life has been on hold for over a year, I have five kids outside my home and I've barely seen them in the last three months. A lot of valid points here. What's important to note is that we're getting opinions from both sides. It's the Shift Podcast. For now, we're going to shift gears, talk about the NHL. And, you know, typically as we're here in the late parts of the season, I'd love to be more excited. I'd love to just talk about how pumped I am as the playoffs are just around the corner. Here we are. It's the final stretch drive. But in reality, we have to talk about something a lot more serious and something quite frustrating. Vancouver Canucks forced to play. We know that much. Seems like some of the games that were originally set for the weekend have been rescheduled. Jeff Patterson, host of the VanCast podcast, which you can find with The Athletic, and a contributor on the Securus and Price podcast now joins us. Jeff, appreciate you giving us some time here. Hey, John. Happy to be with you. Now, we know the Vancouver Canucks, uh, boy, they have been through a lot over the past number of weeks. Uh, an NHL team dealing with an outbreak of COVID-19 uh, now confirmed also the presence of the P1 variant. So uh, they hadn't been playing games for a whole bunch of weeks here jeff what's the latest on the canucks front yeah well in my two plus decades covering this hockey club being on the beat on a daily basis uh, these last couple of weeks have been extraordinary right up there near the top of sort of memorable newsworthy events uh, especially when i think about things that aren't game related necessarily uh just the twists and the turns uh, the way the plot is thickened here uh to hear jt miller speak his mind the other day we don't hear that from players uh, all that often in uh, the hockey world, and it does seem like uh, his words carried some weight, uh, were heard loud and clear by the organization and by people at the Players Association and the league itself. And so, uh, you know, what once looked like just a ridiculous ask of players who have been to hell and back uh, because of the virus, you know, supposed to be playing games Friday and Saturday night to start. Uh, and then from there, it was only going to get worse. It was five games in seven nights and ultimately 19 in, in 31. Uh, the league relented, pushed back uh, the start date or the restart date. And so now they'll uh, come out of this and, and play on Sunday against the Toronto Maple Leafs. And they won't have to go back to back. They'll play Sunday and Tuesday. Uh, but uh, it's still a ridiculously compressed schedule. And there are so many questions and so few answers at this point about uh, the players' health, ultimately, who's going to be available. Uh, we don't even know about the coaching staff. We were told earlier today that Travis Green hasn't been back on the ice yet uh, with his hockey club. So uh, the practices have been closed for the last couple of days, which is extraordinary as well. It just seems at every turn uh, there are things we're encountering trying to cover this hockey club that we, we just have never seen before, uh, and it all tracks back to uh, the virus being brought in and then spreading like wildfire and the league doing all it could to try to find a solution to get the Canucks back to work, back up and running. Uh, but first and foremost, it was player health and safety. And, and that kind of flies in the face of the schedule that was presented to the Vancouver Canucks originally when they were going to have one practice 
and then be expected to play these back-to-back games. So they get a couple of days grace now, and we'll see in the big picture what that does for them in terms of their readiness to uh, resume their schedule on Sunday night against Toronto. They uh, do get those extra days break, like you're saying. Do you think that gives them um, an added level of comfort knowing what's ahead, that uh, very compressed schedule? Because it's one thing to just get back after two weeks off, but then you have COVID-19. And we don't really know the full effects of having COVID-19 long-term. One report, Jeff, I had read a player uh, dealing with some lung issues, so we don't know how serious that's going to be. But they're going up against teams that have been playing regularly in the past two weeks and this whole season. And when you go up against the Oilers with Connor McDavid, uh, the Maple Leafs with Austin Matthews, I mean, they're tough teams to beat any given day now you have to add into the fact that these players for the Vancouver Canucks haven't hit the ice in weeks right so there's so many layers to all of this there's their physical health and well-being and these are elite level athletes that have to get back to a level to be able to compete now ultimately for the Canucks uh, they weren't going to be a playoff team because they won two of their 13 games in February and essentially had played themselves out of playoff contention Uh, so you know it's fair to ask really what's at stake for the Vancouver Canucks but beyond the physical side of things, for me, it's, it's the mental side, it's the psychological side as well, because it's not just players. Like We see them as hockey players, and that's what they are, but they're human beings, first and foremost, dealing with a, a serious virus. And they're also husbands and fathers, and we know that uh, a lot of these players, many of them, brought the virus home, and it spread, and their family members have tested positive. So... You know, they're trying to get back to work and do what they love, but at the same time, uh, we don't know about the, the health aspect for the families and for children. And, it, you know, if you're an, a parent, uh, I, I could imagine that, you know, your full attention might not be on the task at hand of playing hockey at the highest level. And then there's also this element of once they get back, you know, they're going to be up against it for all those reasons we mentioned if it doesn't go well. Like I've sort of allowed myself to think about worst case scenarios. Like if they get absolutely pummeled on the ice, you know, what kind of psychological damage does that do to them to have to play the next game and the next game after that, knowing that they're up against it, that they're short staffed, that they may have young players uh, in the lineup that just aren't NHL ready, but they're healthy and that makes them available. So uh, again, I come back to the fact that uh, I've still got so many questions. Uh, There is a bit of a morbid fascination for me in what is this going to look like? And there's only one way to find out. And that will start Sunday when they skate against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, when you talk about that, I think the likelihood of seeing major blowouts, uh, to me, it seems like the percentage is looking pretty darn high. Again, just given the nature of the opponents they're going up against and the whole context of the situation. So is this a case of where the NHL, the league itself, is handling this as a business? Or is this still the right thing to do? Because when Bill Daly, uh, about a week ago, was saying adamantly that they believe the Canucks can still finish the season, there was a lot of pushback just checking on Twitter and social media from Canucks fans that were outraged that the league wasn't taking a more serious look at just outright canceling the season for the Canucks, if you will. Yeah, and I go back to the fact that ultimately these games don't mean much. The Canucks aren't in a playoff push, but uh, their opponents are, and the games do matter to you know the Montreal Canadiens and the Calgary Flames. Montreal's got a leg up, but, but Montreal and Calgary still have four games head-to-head, and Calgary wants to believe that if they are able to sweep that, the remaining games against the Habs, that you know they could reel them in. And so the games against the Canucks will mean something for the Calgary Flames. Edmonton and Winnipeg jockeying for second place in the division right now, and and that's home ice advantage. And you can say, well, what does home ice advantage mean? But you'd still like it at any level of hockey, even if there's no fans in the stands 
you know, it's your building, it's the comforts of home, it's last line change. There are things at stake for teams to have home ice advantage uh, come playoff time. So it's not as simple as just saying sit the Canucks down and figure it out with the other six teams. Like there is a competitive balance to all of this. And and yeah, I mean, ultimately it tracks back to the, the almighty dollar that uh, this is big business and there are television contracts and radio contracts in play that you know, the league wants to make sure that they provide a, a product that can be broadcast. And, and we know last year, 69 game regular season for the Vancouver Canucks. So they still had 13 to go that they never played. And then they played the summer games in the bubble. Uh, and so you can always track it back to the, the almighty dollar. And certainly that is at play here. But so too is the league trying to get in as many games as it can to formulate some sort of playoff structure because ultimately there are teams that are going to play in the postseason and ultimately the Stanley Cup will be awarded. Uh, it's just that the Vancouver Canucks aren't going to be a part of it. And finally, Jeff, what about the team in itself, the organization with the Vancouver Canucks? Did they do enough to maybe side with their players if some of them internally were thinking, boy, the idea of coming back is just too much right now for all the reasons you listed where do you think the or the organization sort of found itself on this fence here? Were they in the middle, or did they firmly plant themselves on one side in a definitive manner? I would have liked to have seen a little more proactive stance from management and ownership. This seemed like it was player-driven, and I give the players credit. I give JT Miller for being the front man and stepping up and saying what he said on Wednesday it was unfiltered uh, he's a passionate guy who wears his heart on his sleeve and, and we saw that with his comments about safety and readiness uh, I would have loved to have seen uh, the owner of the Vancouver Canucks and we only ever hear from him on Twitter uh, mm. but he could have taken to Twitter and made some sort of statement about you know we're not prepared to have our players put in harm's way like did the organization just sit there and allow the league to reschedule the way that it did with the, the crazy Edmonton-Toronto one-two punch originally that's now been pushed back. It, it kind of felt like the Canucks just accepted what was handed to them. And so, uh, yeah, I, I kind of feel, without knowing all of the details, and I don't know if we ever will, but it felt to me like there could have been more done from management and ownership and really this felt like it was sort of organic from the players. It took me back to the bubble when the players uh, knew that they had a voice and they stood up against racial injustice and, and that postponed a couple of games. And, and I do wonder if you know that emboldened the players to realize that, hey, we do have a say in this. We've got a voice and we better use it. And, and I think they did. And I think ultimately uh, they were heard. And that's the bottom line in all of this is that uh, the Canucks were able to get a few extra days to try to get ready to resume a schedule. And as we said, uh, who knows what it's going to look like, but we'll start to find out uh, on Sunday. Any chance you think this can come back to hurt the Canucks eventually with some of these players maybe feeling dissatisfied with the way the organization responded? Sure. I, I think that uh, there's still a lot that has to be answered uh, from a health standpoint. Uh, what's it going to do to them that way? Um, you know, mentally, there could be some, some scars here too. And so uh, we'll see where it goes. They're hockey players. I think on one hand, this is what they love to do. So getting back around the rink is probably cathartic in some ways. But man, what a steep hill they're being asked to climb here uh, for games that essentially don't matter to, to them. He is uh, Jeff Patterson, host of the VanCast podcast. You can find that with The Athletic, also a contributor with Sakaris and Price, the podcast. Find him on Twitter at Patterson Jeff. That's with one T in Patterson. Jeff, uh, thank you so much for giving us some time here and some clarity on this entire situation. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. 
Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.